Second Chronicles 35 tonight. Lord willing, in a couple weeks we will dig into Second uh, Thessalonians and start a series there in that book. But for tonight, um, just with how things worked, I was wondering if we should start the series or wait a little bit longer. And I read a passage in my devotions in Second Chronicles which we'll get to in, in a few minutes, but I want to kind of set the background a little bit for you. Um, but just read this passage, and it's a thought that has uh, captivated my attention this week, and one that I hope that uh, just to spur your thinking tonight and cause you to go forth from this place just meditating on God's Word and specifically um, how it applies um, to our own lives but in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35, uh, we read a, a fairly detailed account of the reign of King Josiah. Most of us are at least somewhat familiar with King Josiah because he is described for us as a righteous king and one who pleased the Lord. However, his reign, um, though it was a, a bright and shining light, it really was a contrast to the horrible darkness that was in place when Josiah comes on the scene. When he was born, the land was in the midst of a period of time, about 57 years altogether, where his grandfather, King Manasseh, and his father, King Ammon, oversaw some of the most dark and bleak and wicked days in the history of the kingdom of Judah. It was a terrible time. In fact, if you're there in 2 Chronicles, maybe just turn back a page or two to chapter 33. Notice how the Bible describes this time. It says, uh, 2 Chronicles 33, verse 9, it says, So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. May them do worse than the people that God had enabled them to remove from the land. Verse 10 says, The Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. That's what it was like. As a result of Manasseh's sin, specifically, God revealed through his prophets there was going to be a final judgment. Um, you don't have to turn there, but the judgment is really described for us in 2 Kings 21 and verse 10. And it's described as God bringing evil upon Jerusalem and Judah in this way that whosoever heareth of it, that his ears shall tingle. He announced, God did, that he would... Wipe out Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish and turneth it upside down. John's probably laughing because that's the, the uh, men should do dishes verse in the Bible, right? So there you go. You should do dishes. As a man wipeth the... But really, the, the picture is quite bleak and quite dark. God is just going to wipe them out. Because they had, and he, he makes this clear in that passage, the reason for this judgment is that God's people had repeatedly, since the time of Egypt, repeatedly provoked him to anger. And this was finally the end. 
That's the dark scene. That's how bad things are when young King Josiah enters the scene. Look there at chapter 34, verse number 1. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And walked in the days and the ways of David his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. Almost inexplicably, inexplicably, yeah, that's easy for me to say. I mean, it doesn't make any sense that in the midst of this dark time, the nation's progressing towards God's judgment. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but yet there is this young man, very young man, an eight-year-old boy who grows into a young man who he decides to buck the culture, buck the trend, and he's going to be a, a, light, a bright and shining light for God. What a blessing. We're not going to take the time to read chapter 34. You're fairly familiar with the story, I'm sure. But in his eighth year, Josiah's eighth year, so that would make him a teenager, 16 years of age, he begins to seek after God. You read about that in verse number three. Then in verses three through seven, his twelfth year, so he'd be about 20 years old, he purges the land of idolatry, including even a bit of the northern tribes. Uh, of course, they had been, uh, most of them had been taken off by the Assyrians, but for what remained there, uh, Josiah went and purged the land of idolatry, including that, uh, the, those calves that King uh, Jeroboam had set up way back in the beginning of Israel, fulfilling that prophecy. In verses 14, or sorry, 8 through 13, his 18th year, so that would make him about 26, he begins repairing the temple. And this is the story that you learn about when you're in Sunday school. And in repairing the temple and, and fixing it back up so it can be used again, the book of the law is found. God's word is found, and it's read to Josiah, and he realizes we're not doing what God wants us to do. And it's described as he, he rends his clothes and repentance. And he seeks direction. What do we do with what God's revealed? And so he sends some of his men uh, to find the prophetess, a lady named Hulda, uh, that, that he would understand what, what God wants them to do with, with what he's revealed in his word. Then Josiah takes that book and reads it for all of the people. And there's a huge, in, in verses 29 through 33, there, there's a huge fanfare, an event of, of reading the book of the law for all the people. And, and there he says, I'm making a covenant right now that I'm going to follow God's word. I'm standing to that covenant. Who's with me in following God? What an exciting time. Based upon the instructions that they found, in that book of the law, chapter 35, details for us how they went about and said, you know what, God has commanded us to observe the Passover as God's people. And he's given us instructions on how to do that. And so part of the covenant of following God's word was the celebration of the Passover. And it was celebrated in such a way that in verse 17 of chapter 35, the Bible describes the celebration in this way. And the children of Israel that were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days. And notice this description in verse 18. And there was no Passover 
like to that kept in Israel from the days of Samuel the prophet. Neither did all the kings of Israel keep such a Passover as Josiah kept. And the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel that were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Such an exciting time that we're told that there, there, was, there was nothing like it. Nothing like it. It was an experience unparalleled, like no other. You talk about a spiritual high. You talk about an ex- a spiritual exciting time to be alive. Everything was looking really good. And we can only assume that for the next 13 years, based upon God's description of Josiah, based upon God's description of his heart as someone who, who sought the Lord and sought to do what was right, that the next 13 years he continued doing the pattern that he had set of, of seeking the Lord and, and attempting to do what was right. And in fact, in 2 Kings 23, verse 25, this is a verse that characterizes his entire reign. It just says this, And like unto him there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul. You just think about some of the righteous kings that had been. There's no king before him that turned to the Lord in that way. He turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. According to all the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. That's quite a lofty description. And rightfully given to him. It's that sort of spiritual excitement. It's that victory. It's that, wow, this is amazing. That really makes the rest of chapter 35 so shocking. And really, that's our text for tonight. Let's begin reading in verse number 20. In fact, we read verse 18, so this is right on the heels of this. There is a gap of time that takes place here from the 18th year to the 31st year. Verse 20, it says, And after, after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But he, that's the Pharaoh, sent ambassadors to him, saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I came not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Forbear thee from meddling with God who is with me, that he destroy thee not. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he may fight with him, and hearken not unto the words of of Necho from the mouth of God, and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Have me away, for I am sore wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in a second chariot that he had, and they brought him unto Jerusalem, and he died, and was buried in one of the sepulchres of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah. And all the singing men and the singing women spake of Josiah and their lamentations to this day and made them an ordinance in Israel. In other words, some sort of commemorative holiday. And behold, they are written in the lamentations. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to that which was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So it goes from this place of 
spiritual high of could it get much better than this to it's over. It's done. After this event, the nation of Judah would never really be a sovereign state again. The next four kings would all either be sons, direct sons of Josiah, or there's one grandson in there. His first son, Jehoahaz, would be installed by the people as king, as the custom was, but he would only reign for three months. His next son, Jehoiakim, was installed by the Egyptian pharaoh, who is the one who defeated Josiah. He would have an 11-year reign, but his reign would be characterized by repeated attacks by Egypt, Syria, Moab, and of course Babylon. In his third year, so only three years after the event that we just read about, only three years after Josiah's death, Nebuchadnezzar initiated the first captivity around 606 B.C. This would have been when Daniel and his uh, friends were taken captive and taken to Babylon. Just three years after Josiah's death. After um, King Jehoiakim was carried off to Babylon, Josiah's 18-year-old grandson named Jehoiachin, he's also known as Jeconiah, if you're reading the book of Jeremiah, you'll see his name. He became king for only three months before Nebuchadnezzar would come and order a second captivity in 597. This would be when people like uh, Mordecai and Ezekiel were, were taken captive to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar then installed Josiah's third son, direct son there, Zedekiah, as the king. And of course, you know, he was the last king before the final destruction came in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar completely destroyed Jerusalem. So only about 22 years after Josiah's death, Jerusalem is completely destroyed. And that's kind of even a misleading sort of thought, 22 years, because they really were harassed and controlled by the nation of Babylon for most of those years. And of course, as we read, the people, um, they mourned for him. It was an incredibly sad state of events that took place. And in some senses, we kind of mourn for him. We come to this passage and we realize what we have read is a pivotal moment. It's kind of like the hinge where, you know, there is this ascendancy, there was this triumph, there was this uh, a great victory for God and everything hinges. And now instead of a rise, there is a pretty precipitous fall that takes place. And as I read this, and maybe as you read this, you're like me, you scratch your head and you say, what happened? This seems like such a tragedy, such a a waste, a godly king, dead at the age of 39, younger than I am, and his life is over. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at that and I say, there's... There was more potential there than this. There was more that could have been done. Now, I realize in the the grand scheme of, uh, of Scripture, we know that judgment had already been promised against Judah. But God made it very clear that Josiah would not see that judgment. It would not take place in his days, but it would take place after. This didn't have to happen so soon, but yet 
It did. And whenever I, I come across stories like this, I think of, of Romans 15 and verse 4, where God tells us these things were written aforetime, and they were written for our learning. Which means that what we see here as the actions of one individual is really, as all of Scripture, a, a mirror that shows us something about who we are as human beings. And it's incredibly helpful for us to consider these things because we can learn a lot about ourselves and the mistakes, the sin that we're so prone to oftentimes. So what, what happened here? What does God want us to learn? Well, let me give you a little bit more of a historical backdrop so you can understand kind of what is exactly taking place here in these verses that we read. By this time, specifically in world history, there were three main ascending or descending, various stages of power, three main uh, empires that were sort of jockeying for position. You had the Assyrians, you had the Babylonians, and then you also had the pesky Egyptians kind of at the same at the same period of time. By this time, though, the much-hated Assyrian Empire, the ones who had destroyed Israel, um, they were kind of on their last legs, so to speak. Um, in fact, the capital city, Nineveh, that we studied this morning when we were looking at the uh, prophet Nahum and how he predicted that Nineveh would fall, by this time in history, Nineveh has already fallen. And the Assyrians were kind of uh, looking to make a final, a last stand. And so they had concentrated their forces in a city called Carchemish, which uh, before this week, honestly, I didn't have a, a full understanding of where that was. Obviously, we're told, the Bible tells us that it was by Euphrates. And I know generically where that is, but it really was shocking to me when I saw kind of this on a map. And so I brought it for us. And I know it's kind of small and hard to understand, but you can see the colored lines that are here. The, uh, the green uh, is the Babylonian forces, and the purple is the Assyrian forces, and then the orange coming up here is the Egyptian for, uh, uh, forces. You see Karkim is right here, way up in the north. Literally today, that's on the border of Syria and Turkey. Way up there, there's a conflict way up here between the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It's at this time that the Babylonians decide we have the Assyrians on the ropes. This is the end. We've destroyed their capital city. We're going to take them out. We're going to end this once and for all. And finally, we're going we're to be in charge. And of course, you know history. That's exactly what took place. But Pharaoh in Egypt, well, he kind of saw the writing on the wall and he realized... The Babylonians are really the ones to be afraid of. The Assyrians, uh, they, they, don't have much, uh, they don't have much bark left, right? They don't, there's, there's not much teeth in that bark anymore. And so we need to use this opportunity to take out the Babylonians. And so Pharaoh says, all right, I'm going to go ahead and do that. He claims that God's the one who told him to do that. We'll look at that in just a second. But because they feared the Egyptians, or sorry, the Egyptians feared the Babylonians more than the Assyrians, they set out through Palestine, all right, so there's Judah and Jerusalem right there. They set out through the land uh, as quickly as they can to get to Carchemish as fast as they can and so that they, there can be this battle that takes place there. They can assist the Assyrians. 
And for some reason, Josiah decides that he's going to step in and he's going to stop the Egyptians. He's going to prevent them from traveling, getting up, and uh, um, joining in this battle. We don't know why he decided to do this. We're just told that he decides this is what I am going to do. Now, meddling in the conflicts of others is bad enough. All right, Proverbs warns us about that. But it actually is described for us in a much worse sense, especially here in the book of 2 Chronicles. In the book of Kings, we're not given as much detail as we are here. But did you notice the conversation between Pharaoh and Josiah, specifically in verse 21? We're told that he, that's Pharaoh, Pharaoh Necho, sent ambassadors to Josiah. So he heard that Josiah was marshalling his forces and was going to try to catch up with the, with, the, with the Egyptians. He hears about this, and so he sends a group of men, he sends some ambassadors, and he says, I know what you're planning to do, but I want to tell you, in verse 21, what have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I came not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Forbear thee from, from meddling with God, who is with me, that he destroy thee not. Notice some of the things that Pharaoh says. Pharaoh says, I'm, I'm not coming against you today. I'm not here to fight with you. I, I have no bone to pick with you. My fight is not with you. In fact, it was God himself who commanded me to make haste. It was God who said, you, go there, do this, and do it quickly. I'm just doing what God has told me to do. God is with me because I'm obeying what God has revealed to me. Don't meddle with me. Don't meddle with my army because if you do, did you catch the phrase? If you do, God will destroy you. Now, he's not saying, I'm going to destroy you as this great military leader. He says, God is going to destroy you if you meddle with God's plan. That's really interesting. Unfortunately, we read in verse 22 that Josiah did not heed the warnings. In an act of self-will, Josiah goes forward with his plans and this is even more remarkable. Let me show you this next map. This is kind of zoomed in on Judah. He decides he's going to go forward with his idea of trying to stop, take out the Egyptians. And the Bible tells us that this battle took place in a, in a, a spot called Megiddo, which, interestingly enough, the battle of Armageddon that is described is in the same place. It's a huge valley there just south of Mar Mount Carmel, um, kind of in line with about the city of Nazareth, all the way up in Galilee. You notice how far he has to go from Jerusalem all the way up here to kind of catch up with the Egyptians? I mean, you would think if there's any sort of doubt, I'll just, uh, I'm not so sure I want to do this, so just let him go. They had already progressed almost all the way through, in fact, really all the way through his territory. He goes out of his way to attack the Egyptians. We read about how he tried to bypass the danger by disguising himself. And, of course, that didn't work real well. It's kind of a sad irony that the most wicked king of God's people, Ahab, 
And the, the mo- one of the most righteous kings, Josiah, died in the exact same way in an attempt to avoid the end that God predicted, that they disguised themselves because they were told, don't do this. Kind of sad. But we can only speculate as to why. Why did Josiah make this decision? Why did he make this choice? We could say, well, perhaps. I mean, he was already told by the prophetess Huldah that God would judge Judah one day, but not during his reign. Perhaps he assumed that God's judgment would come from the Assyrians. That had happened before, not in the too distant past. And perhaps he, he wanted the Babylonians to take out the Assyrian threat. And so he wanted to make sure the Egyptians stayed out of it so the Babylonians could have a free crack at the Assyrians. Of course, not realizing that God was actually going to use the Babylonians against Judah, not the Assyrians. But he didn't know that. Perhaps that would be a possibility. Perhaps he was, you know, just personally miffed that Pharaoh would choose to go through his land and nobody's going to do that to me and nobody's going to challenge me in that way. Or perhaps he was just kind of looking for a fight. A way to prove himself. The point is this, God doesn't tell us what motivated him. And so we could make our guesses and perhaps you have a thought, you know, based on on what you've read and you know, but God doesn't tell us what his heart motivation was. However, God does tell us why Josiah went through with his plan. And this is the most telling. Why did Josiah continue on with his plan to attack the Egyptians? Verse 22 gives us the answer. Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him, that's Pharaoh, and hearken not to the words of Necho from the mouth of God and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. You see, God gives us his commentary. In the scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved for us today, God tells us why Josiah went through with his plan and the reason why he went through with it was because that he, he did not listen to The words through the Pharaoh of Egypt, but the words that actually were from God himself. In other words, we understand that God was trying to communicate with Josiah and Josiah didn't even realize it. God was trying to speak to a righteous king who in the past had dedicated himself to following the Lord and Josiah didn't recognize God's voice. He didn't see it. Now, I understand we, we give Josiah a little bit of, of, of leeway, we could say, of credit. This was an unlikely source. However, it's not the first time that God spoke to a heathen king. wouldn't be the last. God would speak to Nebuchadnezzar. God would speak to Cyrus. God would speak to the leader of the Egyptians way back when, when, uh, when he tried to take Abraham's wife. Remember that? It was an unlikely source. But the point is this. God was trying to speak to Josiah, but Josiah completely missed what God was trying to tell him. Now understand the weight of what's happening here. Josiah had heard God's voice 
in the past through God's word. He sought God. He sought the word of God. He heard from God through his word. Back in chapter 34, we read about that. Josiah sought God's voice in the past through God's prophet. He wanted to understand what does God's word mean? I'm going to go to to God's mouthpiece. So he heard God's voice in the past. He sought God's voice in the past. He even committed himself to obeying God's voice in the past when he stood before the people and he said, I'm standing to this covenant. Who is with me? He committed himself to hearing God's voice in the past and he had even obeyed God's voice in the past by leading one of the most remarkable observations of the Passover that had ever been. But 13 years had passed. 13 years. And though he had heard God's voice and sought God's voice and committed himself to God's voice and even obeyed God's voice in the past, he failed to hear God's voice in the present. Remember, God's word is the mirror that we look into to see ourselves. Somewhere along the line, King Josiah stopped listening to God's voice. And slowly over time, he lost his sensitivity to God's voice. So much so that when God tried to direct him, when God tried to give him clear instructions, when God tried to confront him with his way that was not right, he didn't recognize it. Now, perhaps he doubted the sincerity of a heathen king who, you know, claimed to hear God's voice. But do we find him consulting the word of God? You know, what he had heard from in the past? No. Do we find him consulting a prophet of God, a man of God? No, we don't see that either. It almost seems as though he's not sensitive anymore to the fact that he needed to seek God's voice as much in the present as he had done in the past. It's kind of like he felt, maybe he did, I don't know if this is true, but it kind of seems like he felt that he didn't need God's voice anymore. That he kind of progressed beyond Needing it. Perhaps Josiah just got too busy doing things for God that he neglected to listen to God. Does that ever happen to you? It happens to me. We get so busy in doing things for God that we forget where it all comes from and where it all starts. Our relationship with God and hearing from God every day through our walk with Him. And on the outside, all of those actions, the external, or I should say the externalities of the Christian life, they all continue on largely as they had in the past. But they're no longer being fed anymore by actually walking with God. And that drift takes place so much that we get to this incident here in 2 Chronicles 35 Where again, God is trying to get Josiah's attention and he doesn't even realize it. He doesn't even sense it. Living life 
not seeking God's voice and hearing God's voice kind of meant that over time, doing those outward things, doing God's will, slowly devolved into doing Josiah's will. See, this is what happens when we stop listening to God. Doing God's will because God desires it becomes simply doing what we want and what we're comfortable with, what we're used to. In the past, Josiah had sought God's agenda for his life. He had sought the person of God. But now it seems like all he is seeking is God's blessing on his own agenda. There's a big distinction, isn't there? Between seeking what does God want and this is what I want to do, this is what I feel comfortable with. God, can you just make this go well? Have you ever been there? You see, Josiah had gotten used to something that was good. Taking bold action. We read about how, and it was God's agenda, seeking God. He took bold action against the idolatry of the land. He took bold action against those who who blatantly disregarded disregarded God's commands. You remember that one, and I I didn't look up the, the particular verse, but where, you know, he took those He took those idols and the gold of those idols and ground it up and made the priest drink it. That's bold. I like that, all right? We like to read that. Amen, man. Strong. Bold for God. Accomplishing some great things for God. So he got used to taking bold action against that which he deemed as that which was wrong. And in the past, that was God's agenda. That's what God wanted. But he neglected to evaluate his bold action in the present, taking out one of God's enemies, the Egyptians. He failed to consult God because doing God's will had devolved into doing his will. God's will versus self-will. And because he was so used to acting, he had developed a pattern of acting in his self-will, Now, again, I don't think this this was apparent to to the people looking on at his life. He was still doing good things, but the motivation of his heart was just that's where he was comfortable. That's what he, he felt was good. That's what he wanted to do, and he just continued doing it. But doing God's will devolved into doing self will, and he was so comfortable in that, so used to that, that when the conflict came, that God was trying to get his attention. He missed it. He didn't hear God's voice. Hearing from God in the past and following God in the past does not guarantee that you're hearing from God and following God in the present. So on the outside, everything looks like it did in the past. But doing God's will is now doing self-will. Just because you've been obedient to God in the past doesn't mean you're following and hearing from in the present. Beware of living off the spirituality of the past. Decisions you made 
in the past. Life choices you've made in the past. Not diminishing those things, the decisions and choices that Josiah made were good and right. But somewhere along the line, he lost the motivation for those things. In our minivan, our Honda Odyssey, it has something called eco mode. A little green light that comes on every once in a while when we're driving. And the way it works is when you're accelerating, it uses all of the cylinders of the engine. And as soon as you let off the accelerator and you begin coasting, the eco mode turns on and two of the cylinders, I think it's two in, in, in that engine, are turned off to kind of save on, on fuel. I don't know how much actual fuel it saves. Um, halfway through our trip home from Missouri, uh, it went out and stopped working, and it didn't really affect much. But anyway, that's it's supposed to save some gas. It probably does a little bit, but just not much, not very noticeable. As long as you're on the accelerator, as long as you are, you're, 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 you're pushing the progress, as long as you are you know, engaged in moving forward, All the cylinders fire in that engine. But as soon as you lay off the accelerator, eco mode turns on, those two cylinders shut off, and you are now coasting. You're living off of the inertia, the and I'll you know connect the dots here. You're living off the spiritual inertia of the past. You're gonna stop eventually, right? But it might take some might take some time. The point is, you're not continuing to accelerate. You know, spiritually, we can live in eco mode, autopilot, simply coasting. Oh, I did all of those things for God in the past. Oh, I was really pushing the envelope for God in the past. He was really challenging my faith in the past. He was really stretching me in the past. And so, you know what? That's for the young people to do now. Now it's time to just relax. It's time to coast. And I'm not saying this is something that just older folks struggle with. Don't get me wrong. But all of of us deal with this. The sad part is when you take a step back and consider that when Josiah made this choice, who he had around him. He had a 23-year-old son named Jehoahaz. He had a 25-year-old son named Jehoiakim. He had a 10-year-old son named Zedekiah and a 7-year-old grandson named Jehoiachin. What they remember about their father, what they saw from their father was the spiritual coasting self-will of the present not necessarily the spiritual victories of the past. Is it any surprise that each of their reigns really are characterized by their own self-rebellion, not only against Egypt, but against Babylon, and ultimately rebellion against God? It was the prophet Jeremiah that said, submit to this, this is God's will. And they said, I'm not going to submit to my enemy. Oh, they had times where they decided they got boxed in a corner, so they submitted. But each time they were like, nope, they rebelled against Babylon. And as a result, 
They face the judgment of God. Unfortunately, that's what they last saw their father doing. How sad is that? Tonight, just consider with me, has God's will in your life devolved into your own self-will? Ultimately, have you stopped listening to God? This is a good question to ask ourselves. Why do I do the things that I do? Why am I involved in perhaps the ministries that I am involved in? Why, why am I uh, doing those things in my Christian life that I am doing? Is it just because I am comfortable? I'm used to it? It works for me? I'm good with it? Isn't that really just self-will? Just doing what is convenient, what you're used to, what you're comfortable with? That's just self-will. Now, on the outside, they're good things. But the motivation is just, I'm doing them because I want to do them. Now, I want to be real careful with this, but just, just, just go with this for just a second. Has God led you to an area of service in the past? An area where you now feel competent and comfortable and you're good with? But now God is, wants to lead you to a new area of growth? But you're not hearing God's voice because you're just coasting? You're just kind of in self-will mode and God's like, no, I've got something more here. Could it be? But you realize this can happen in the reverse as well. Perhaps God has led you to maybe step away from an area of service in the past due to you know, emergency or some sort of circumstance and now you're comfortable and God wants you to return to service. But you're good where you are. So you don't hear God's voice. God's trying to communicate with you, but because you've already determined this is what I'm going to do, you miss His voice. Do you seek to hear God's voice and follow His direction on a daily basis? What we see in Josiah is a mirror, mirror image of ourselves. This is the direction that we will tend to drift if we're not very careful in giving attention to the fact that I can easily do all the right things, but somewhere along the line, switch God's voice off to the point where I really don't need it anymore. I mean, I know how to do these things. I know how to teach this class. I know how to serve in this area. I know how to, I know how to witness. So the switch goes off and we're just in self-will coast mode. And now when God taps us on the shoulder to say, it's time to step out by faith in a new area, we are like, it's like, what? I'm good. Just look at my life. Look, look at what I've done in the past. Are you actively seeking God's will today? You see, this is the only antidote to this idea of 
devolving into self-will versus God's will. The only, ad, the only antidote, the only answer is actively seeking, God, what do you want me to do? God, where do you want me to be involved? And you notice how in the past Josiah had sought and heard from God. He sought and heard from God through his word. And he had sought and heard from God through and that in this case, you know, specifically the, the prophetess of God. And really, that's where we need to actively seek God's will for us today. From the preaching of his word, from the proclamation of his word, and through our own study of his word. And if we will stay actively seeking God's will, we won't get to this place where God is trying to speak to us and it's like nothing ever happened. Because there's nothing more tragic than what took place in this chapter. I know God's judgment was coming. I know it was going to take place. It's, but, but God, but, but Josiah was not a robot. It's not like uh, sometimes, and I even read some Bible commentators who are kind of like, well, this was God's will, so, you know, God. But Josiah didn't have to make this choice. It's a very sad choice with very dire consequences. But he did so because he missed hearing God's voice. If we're actively seeking to hear from God, this won't happen to us. We'll be living by his direction instead of just what we're comfortable with. Are you seeking his voice?